This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. We just got new guidelines for alcohol consumption and they're a bit of a shock to many of us. They say that there is really no safe level of alcohol consumption and if we want to avoid the risks, we should limit ourselves to two drinks a week. Now, that's a big change from the previous guidelines from just a decade ago, which were more like two drinks a day, 10 a week for women, 15 a week for men. So what led to this big change? And more important, what, if anything, are you going to do about it? I'd like to know if you are cutting back or stopping drinking. And this comes in the midst of the increasingly popular dry January when many people take a break from booze or maybe reassess their drinking habits altogether. Uh, Full disclosure, I've also stopped regularly having wine with dinner. Numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Forty, And now I'm joined by Dr. Peter Butt, co-chair of the project to develop Canada's alcohol guidance. Dr. Kevin Shields, scientist with CAMH's Institute for Mental Health Policy Research. And Dr. Aaron Hoban from Public Health Ontario, whose focus is on warning labeling. Thanks for joining and welcome to you all. Hello. Hello. Hi. Good morning. So let me begin with Dr. Peter Butt. And I think what really strikes a lot of people is that this is so different from the guidance uh, not that long ago. So how, how did that happen? Well, it was quite clear that the evidence had emerged in the successive 10 years from the 2011 guidance that we, we published that um, alcohol was more toxic than previously appreciated, particularly with regards to the cancer evidence, the heart disease evidence, and indeed internationally what we saw with the UK, France, and Australia, that they had extensively reviewed more recent literature and, and found that the relationship in terms of alcohol consumption and harm was um, shifting. We also knew that People drinking within the guidance that we provided before in 2011 that you referenced were indeed coming to harm even at that level. So it was imperative that we update the information and provide it to the Canadian public. And Dr. Shield, was this looking back at studies that have already been done or were these new studies? So there was quite a substantial number of studies published before the previous guideline, between the previous guidelines and these guidelines. And those were all reviewed by methods which we call a systematic review. So we systematically searched the literature. So any published study that mentions alcohol and these harms were systematically looked at and assessed in terms of the evidence that they provide that alcohol causes those harms. And so we looked at over 6,000 studies which were published in the interim, and that's what led to these new guidelines. Uh, And uh, Dr. Hoban, uh, you're focusing on labeling, and uh, it's your contention that putting warning labeling on uh, on alcoholic products will will, uh, improve things because people aren't aware. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Um, Canada is a world leader in designing effective tobacco warning labels and even most recently cannabis uh, warning labels. Yet alcohol is largely exempt from these labeling regulations in Canada. And given the relatively high health and economic burden from alcohol in Canada, there's a real opportunity to strengthen labeling measures uh, for alcohol. Okay, now uh, I, I'm wondering, Doctor, but what um, what do you tell people who find this to be actually quite extreme? Well, I think that it, rather than focusing on the one to two standard drinks per week that that is 
in the low risk zone, the low to negligible risk zone, it's important to people for people to look at the all of the risk zones. So one to two would be considered low, three to six is moderate, and seven plus is increasingly high. So really, it's important for people to simply reflect on how much they're drinking, situate themselves within these risk zones, and decide if they want to make an adjustment, preferably downward, with regards to how much they're drinking. Because every every alcohol beverage that one drops in terms of their daily or weekly consumption is going to have an improvement in terms of their health and well-being. So that's the good news. There's There's a way to better health and well-being through this guidance. Dr. Shield, I I guess one of the things uh, is, so first of all, uh, people who come from certain Mediterranean cultures like uh, French or Italian or Portuguese, I mean, drinking has been part of their culture for a very, very long time. And, you know, lots of people who will have a glass of wine with dinner and who thought they were moderate drinkers, you know, now, according to this, are heavy drinkers. Yeah, and that's true. So previously, we thought that the Mediterranean diet was healthy. And that comes from the uh, correlation between risk factors. So we're lumping all these risk factors together, like exercise, uh, how much of vegetables and fruit you're getting in your diet, and alcohol. So for the Mediterranean diet, it's great in terms of fruits and vegetables, and these people exercise more than the average Canadian does. However, um, what happens is that the alcohol is causing harm there. So if these people actually consumed less alcohol, they would be even healthier. So the health effect is due to confounding because that alcohol is associated with the Mediterranean diet in terms of the beneficial effects. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm also wondering how, I mean, this was done at a population level because, I mean, how do you tease out if there's a cancer case, uh, whether it was alcohol or whether it was a host of other factors? So we can't tease out any individual case like with tobacco. So if somebody has lung cancer, for instance, we can't determine whether or not it was smoking air pollution, or just bad luck. Some people get lung cancer without any risk factor just due to aging. Um, But what we can do is that across multiple cases, we can see that there's an increased chance of lung cancer among smokers. And that's what we did with alcohol, is we looked at all these individuals with cancers, and they seem to have a higher amount of alcohol they consume. Now, for causality... We don't stop there. We also look at animal studies, which show that if you administer alcohol to uh, rats and mice, you have an increased risk of cancer, as well as molecular studies. So we know that alcohol can directly damage DNA. And so that allows us to causally assess whether or not alcohol is due to, uh, whether or not those cancers are due to alcohol. So, again, in terms of an individual assessing their risk, I mean, if you look at an average risk for breast cancer, which is uh, one in nine, uh, you know, how do you, how does that fit? You know, you're saying, well, I have a one in nine risk uh, of, of contracting breast cancer if I'm a woman. Uh, how do, how do you fit the alcohol piece into that calculation? So let's say you have a one in nine chance of uh, breast cancer and you're drinking at a level that doubles your risk of breast cancer. So that would be quite heavily, actually. Um, What that means is that you have a two in nine chance of getting breast cancer. And so in those instances, you would want to reduce your risk of cancer through reducing your alcohol consumption. So instead of two in nine, you'd want to be that one in nine. But again, with any individual case, we can't tell what it's specifically due to. We can just tell you at the population level how many cases would be prevented if people reduce their alcohol use. But mm. at the individual level, we can talk about risks. Right. So you can definitely reduce your risk, but we can't talk with any certainty. Okay. And I think, frankly, people who do lung cancer would probably disagree that, that uh, you can't tell what caused it. 
because they're pretty adamant that the vast, vast majority uh, are caused by smoking. That is true, but some are caused by some uh, are, lung yeah. cancer and cancer. Yeah. Uh, I'm also curious in terms of uh, talking about cancer risk, uh, were any oncologists or uh, cancer centers involved in this research? Uh, that would be a question for Peter Butt. He would be um, better suited for that. Okay, Peter Butt, go ahead. Right, no problem. Uh, the short answer is, is no, not directly. However, during the um, consultation process, we didn't have oncologists as experts on the panels. We, we needed people such as uh, Aaron and Kevin. But with regards to the clinical uh, implementation, there, there's been consultation with the Canadian Cancer Society and, and others with regards to how do we present this information, not only to the Canadian public, but also to healthcare providers and different specialties because there would be general internists and cardiologists that are and family physicians that are going to need to use this information at the bedside or in their consultations. So um, as part of parallel to the public consultation, which was done in August, we also were uh, reaching out to different professional organizations to say, did we get it right? Um, do you have any feedback or comment on this with, through your particular I mean, I'm wondering if they agree with this. Uh, I happened to be talking to an oncologist yesterday. It doesn't agree with this. Yes, that would be unfortunate. (laughs) I'm not sure if they disagree with the science, which is very durable. It's very rigorous. Or if they disagree with the approach. Can you be more specific? Uh, no, not really, (laughs) because it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, uh, such a detailed conversation. Sure. Sure. So I think part of it is this information has just uh, been released in the final report. We're going to be doing more work with regards to the knowledge mobilization and the um, the advertising of this to the Canadian public. And parallel to that as well, we'll be reaching out to professional organizations so, so people can appreciate when they're providing health care to individuals that there are lots of opportunities to engage in conversation around um, alcohol consumption. For instance, if a person is going in and having their blood pressure checked, that would be an ideal time to um, review alcohol use because alcohol increases blood pressure. Okay, I'm going to take a couple of calls, starting with Bill in Uxbridge. Hi, Bill. Hi, Libby. Uh, Just a question to the doctors here. How about us old guys who have been drinking normally all our lives we have several chronic conditions like diabetes and a heart condition and a few other things. Is cutting our alcohol consumption in half really going to improve our state of health? And that's all I wanted to ask. Okay. Who wants to take that? I can, uh, I can take that because I've done some research on this. Uh, absolutely. So from the epidemiological evidence, what we see is that if you reduce your drinking, it reduces your risk and improves your chronic condition. So it can improve your blood sugar levels. Um, we know it improves your uh, blood pressure as well, and it reduces your risk of cancer over time. So what we see is that there is a reduction in risk, and about 10, 20, 30 years onward, you look like you're a lifetime stainer. So if you are 50, it will go down, um, and by the time you're 80, your health will look like you were a lifetime standard your whole life. So there is a reversal in risk. Um, it's not immediate in terms of the full extent of its benefits, but over time, you will experience the full benefits of that reduction. And it takes about 20 years for the full reduction in risk, but it does occur. Uh, and interesting, Bill mentioned diabetes, and my understanding is that we've known for a very long time drinking drinking when you have diabetes is very, very bad. No comment. Okay. Yes, that's true. Sorry. Um, yeah. and, and frankly, because of the calorie load, and one of the things with regards to labeling that Aaron may want to comment on as well is, is nutritional labeling. People often are not aware of the um, calorie load that's uh, included in, in beverage alcohol. With regards to older adults, if I can pivot back to that, we also need to be thinking about the 
acute impacts. Kevin was commenting on the, the cumulative effects. But um, because of decreased lean body mass and, and other changes in older adults, and these would be individuals over the age of 60 or 65, their blood alcohol concentration goes up compared to younger adults by about 30%. Um, drink for drink. If you then factor in the medication that older adults are on, increasing frailties, the recommendation is, is really for older adults to cut these guidelines in half. Wow. So One drink a week, people. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, in, in, in terms of the acute effects, um, what we found is that people who drink over two standard drinks on an occasion are more likely to run into problems with accidents, injuries, and, and violence. With regards to older adults, of course, the concern is with falls. So being very careful and mindful in terms of how much uh, one is taking, particularly before going to bed when when you might be getting up in the middle of the night, is uh, a good harm reduction strategy. Hmm, That's interesting. Uh, let's take a call from Arlene and Lindsay. Hello, Arlene. Hi, Lindsay. Or, I'm sorry. Hi, You're Lindsay. You? Okay, go ahead. Good. Anyways... Um, 14 years ago, I was having heart palpitations, and I was supposed to have an ablation, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to try and do this all on my own. So I did stop drinking, which was a huge factor in stopping the palpitations, and went totally vegetarian, etc. And for seven years, I was without the heart palpitations, felt fantastic. Um, I did have to have the ablation eventually because of age again, but when I went in to have it done, the doctor said to me, this is an example of a healthy person at 65, and this is how you want to be. And he asked what I did, et cetera, et cetera, and if I drank, et cetera, and I didn't at uh, that time, and I still don't. But anyways, it did change my health 100%. The other thing, too, that people are very defensive on drinking. That is what I found. If I go to a place where people are drinking, I'm like this conscience standing there. And I'm not their conscience. They can do whatever they want to do as far as drinking. And in my own case, I don't judge them. It's up to you to do what you want to do, etc. But there is a definite, definite health um, improvement 100% 100% by not drinking. And, and, and you know what, Arlene, is, that works the other way as well, that that uh, sometimes people who are not drinking are, uh, I don't know, judged is the right word, but everybody's wondering, well, why aren't you drinking? And, and coming up after this segment, I'm doing a segment on uh, the rise of mocktail culture and non-alcoholic drinks. Arlene, uh, I'm glad to hear your story and thanks for your call. And let us go to Stephen Brampton. Hello, Steve. Oh, hi, Libby. Uh, I'm going to try to get this question out. It's a bit lumpy. I, I, uh, I'm a senior guy. I quit smoking decades ago. I go to the gym every day. I eat fairly healthy. But I do like to uh, have a couple of drinks every afternoon. So my question to the researchers is, because I know sometimes when you pick a, a, a sample to do your research with, I wonder... Were there any variations in the in the research uh, that would say, oh, well, if you exercise, you mitigated uh, that risk by so much. If your diet was good, or is it just a flat, don't drink, that's it. Okay. Uh, who that, wants to take that? that? My question. So I can talk about that in terms of risk factors. So they're independent, but they're correlated. So we know that if you have a high BMI, if you drink, it will harm you more than a person with a lower BMI. But there's no real mitigation of risk. So what happens is, even if you're healthy on every other risk factor out there, alcohol will still increase your risk of infectious diseases, cardiovascular diseases, digestive diseases, cancers, as well as injuries. So what's happening is that um, people can be healthy in all other aspects of their life and reduce their risks through other ways. Um, but if they do uh, engage in heavier alcohol consumption, um, that will increase their risk. Now, at the end of the day, it's a choice in terms of what kind of risk a person wants to take on, and that's up to their personal preference. But that's what the low-risk drinking guidelines present, is that no matter who you are, um, and no matter what your behavior on other risk factors, here's what happens when you do drink. Um, but there, again... You know, if you have a family history of breast cancer, you might want to take the guidelines a little bit more cautiously because alcohol is a big factor in breast cancer. 
um, or if you flush red, actually, when you drink, that's a uh, indication you're not metabolizing the, the alcohol well. And you actually almost have a 10 times higher risk of cancer when you drink alcohol compared to people who don't flush. And, so overall, and I'm, I'm going to interrupt. Are, are there some uh, ethnic groups that are more susceptible? Yeah, so that would be, when you flush red, that is more prevalent among Eastern Asians. So people from China, Japan, Thailand, in terms of genetics, um, the that gene is more prevalent among those populations. And those people have about 10 times a higher risk of developing cancer when they drink um, compared to people who don't drink. So it's one thing that, uh, you know, we're really worried about um, when we see people who do flush and do drink alcohol, their risk of cancer is astronomically higher. Hmm. Uh, um, yeah, and uh, I think in some of those cultures, especially the men might uh, drink quite a lot. Yeah, uh, when they drink, they drink a lot. Yes, that's true. Okay. Um, let's go to uh, Margaret in Niagara Falls. Hello, Margaret. Hello, Libby. Um, this topic is near and dear to me. I lost my mom in 2009. Sorry to hear that. Uh, she was she had uh, breast cancer. She contracted at 82. And I believe she was an alcoholic all her life. And I spoke to the doctors and they believed maybe it wasn't the root cause because she was a smoker years before, but it definitely did not help her. And I can't drink to this day um, because I saw what she went through. And it's very sad when you have to take something away from somebody that doesn't understand why. Hmm. Because their mind is totally on the alcohol. Hmm. Well, 80, and, uh, I 82. just wanted to make that comment. I truly believe that that study is 100% right. Okay, Margaret, thanks for that. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and again, it is really hard to tease out, uh, you know, a cause, whether it's alcohol or whatever on an individual level. Um, so, uh, is there anything else that we should know about this, Dr. Hoban? I mean, I think one of the um, main aims of the updated guidance, as well as the recommendation for labels, is to spark conversations in Canada like the one like the one that we're having right now about the health risks from alcohol, and to really start to shift perspectives of alcohol from a relatively benign substance to a substance with serious health risks like cancer. So is this kind of uh, the trajectory that we saw many decades ago for cigarettes? I think it could be quite, um, you know, quite similar. The Our team um, collaborated with um, Dr. Tim Stockwell from the University of Victoria to test uh, well-designed uh, warning labels on alcohol that somewhat um, reflected the warning labels we see on tobacco packages and that the warning labels we tested were um, relatively large in size, had bright yellow backgrounds with red borders, and messages warning about the link between alcohol and cancer, um, Canada's lowest drinking guidelines, and the number of standard drinks in a container. And what we found from that study was that Canadians want more um, health information on alcohol containers, and this type of health information can um, increase their knowledge of the health risks of alcohol, um, and can also uh, potentially reduce population level consumption by about 7% um, in the sites with the labels compared to sites without those types of labels. So well-designed labels can support um, consumers in making more informed and potentially safer alcohol uh, use decisions. Okay, well, of course, uh, a lot of people in the industry are opposed to that. I'm looking at the clock. We have to wrap things up. And it is a conversation, I have to say, that a lot of people are having. So thank you so much, Dr. Peter Butt, Dr. Aaron Hoban, and Dr. Kevin Shield. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay, we're taking a break, and when we come back, so what do you do uh, in social drinking situations? When we come back, we'll talk about the rise of mocktails, and I had a bunch of them last night. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. So what if you want to cut out or cut back on alcoholic drinks, uh, but you also want to enjoy going to a bar or a party or another social occasion that usually involves alcohol? Well, it seems to me that there has been a recent explosion of interest in fancy and festive non-alcoholic drinks and mocktails. And just last night, okay, I'm not bragging. I was at an amazing tasting dinner at Michelin star Don Alfonso 1890. And I had the non-alcoholic drink pairings with food. And I chatted with the mixologist, Caden Kim. This one is made with spice, clarify the pineapple juices. You clarify the pineapple juice first and then make it honey and ginger. So it's a honey, but ginger flavor. And a little bit of citric acid solution, not the lemon juice, the citric acid solution with the still water. They seem to have really gotten much more popular lately, non-alcohol. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. People want to drink as a, like a regular people. Like a, there's like a pregnant person, like so many reasons, right? So we are elevating the mocktail, not just the mixing with the juices. So we can actually um, bring the non-alcoholic things or using the like a fat washing, clear fighting it, something like that kind of a cocktail technique. And then we combine into the mocktail. It's going to be like a, not just juices, not just a cocktail, it's something new concept of the mocktail. So this move to non-alcoholic drinks is a big thing. And I gather, especially among younger people, millennials. So uh, what do you think? Uh, does that make it more likely that you maybe cut back? Will you have one of these? Uh, what do you think of the whole idea? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Renee Suen, the food editor at Blog TO, and Gail Lynch, the CEO of Zero Cocktail Bar in Toronto. Welcome. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So happy dry January. Uh, thank <laughs> you. Happy dry January to you. So, Renee, I mean, it seems to me suddenly this whole topic seems to be everywhere. Well, I, I have to almost plug in. I know that I'm the food editor at Blog2O, but recently uh, I did put together a trends list for food for 2023 for Chatelaine, and that was one of the first and top items that I mentioned. I mean, the whole um, zero-proof or placebo uh, cocktails, as, as we all know it, more commonly as mocktails, has been a movement for the last number of years, but really has been embraced, I think, by uh, basically not just uh, teetotalers who generally, you know, might not choose to drink alcohol, but also people with varying reasons for living, you know, that sort of booze-free uh, lifestyle. And and like I was mentioning, I guess that you had mentioned earlier, there is dry the dry January, but there are also other needs, like either for health or lifestyle needs, women who might be, you know, pregnant uh, for religious reasons or, you know, clean living advocates. There's various uh, members in in basically the community who might be looking for a more sophisticated drink that's not literally a Shirley Temple or a a pop, like a Coke or a Sprite. Well, yeah. And sometimes when you're out, if uh, you're the person not drinking, you know, people kind of look at you. So why is that? Um, If it's for me to answer, uh, I think that's the one thing is that there is that stigma. Generally, when I think people go out, it's uh, either for socializing, sometimes for networking. And we're starting to see this quite a bit also in the sort of work setting that, you know, there are individuals who can handle their, um, I guess, alcohol consumption, no problem. And then there's others who might be a little bit more sensitive. And in that sort of setting, you don't want to have that sort of stigma of looking like maybe you're not participating in that way. So the really great way of having, you know, these sort of virgin cocktails is that those who are abstaining from drinking alcohol can still be in that sort of social setting, still have a sophisticated and delicious drink, uh, but also not look like they're, you know, having, uh, I guess, if you want to call it a a, a child's uh, sort of uh, friendly uh, <laughs> beverage. Uh, and the great, great thing right now is that there is so much effort put into that, that there are not only like tinctures or cordials or even, you know, like you want to call it infused juices, there are actually products 
on the market that are made to simulate a lot of those flavors that you might find normally in a alcoholic sort of spirit, uh, but they've been de-alcoholized um, or they have been made to have characteristics like it so that you can have those same flavors and yet at the same time not be inebriated in, you know, that social setting that you might be in. Gail Lynch, uh, when did you start getting into this and, uh, uh, you know, uh, have you seen a big increase in interest? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I started this a year and a half ago. I, I built a bar on my patio uh, during the pandemic, just trying to do something tactile and, you know, um, from there, started really experimenting with different flavors. I've made every syrup, every shrub. I needed to understand those things. And as I looked at what was in the market, uh, to the chef's point, um, they're definitely great non-alcoholic spirits now. But when I started, um, I could find four things I could look at. Seedlet, uh, and kudos to them for being the first. Uh, Teetotal Wine is actually out of Toronto and Sexy AF. That, that's all I could find. And what so was I the last one? Sexy AF. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, um, right. And so, yes, yeah, so this is a trajectory, uh, upward trajectory. We have every spirit you can think about, whether you say it's assimilated to, you know, I mean, if you're going to get gin, silvery out of, uh, out of, uh, uh, Milton here, you know, it's, it has juniper and it has cardamom, the same as you would the alcohol spirit. The difference is there's no ethanol, uh, within the zero proof or non-out spirit. So we are on a trajectory moving up. Uh, so get out of our way and let us do it. Uh, I have to say that I, I've tried a bunch of things and some of the cocktails are great. And mm-hmm. I think uh, it's not hard to find a, a, a reasonably tasting gin imitator. I have not found a decent, just plain dry wine. Everything seems to be kind of sweet and and uh, mm-hmm. tastes like apple juice to me. No, there's they, got to be something for you. Now, I personally like teetotal wines. Uh, I'm actually a fan more so of a white or rosé, but I actually like the red of teetotaler. So here's what I would say. Soberlicious, one place to go take a look. Clear Sips is another place to go take a look. Those are both Canadian, and they can they have the gamut of uh, uh, wines out there. Uh, Clear Sips is always doing um, a tasting. I think there's something coming up. So I think that you can find a red wine to your life, and I guarantee, I have no doubt that you can do that. And I'm going to add to that as well. There is a newish sort of product that came out last year. It's actually a product called Jukes. And they're little concentrated bottles, which is great that, you know, you can, you know, how sometimes if you're in, a single uh, drinker, you don't want to open or crack open a whole bottle and then feel bad or not about finishing it all. So these are all in small little, um, I guess, uh, an ounce or two sort of uh, packaging. And they're dilutable cordials. So they're completely oh, alcohol-free, but they're made to taste... Um, like either a red or a rosé or a white wine. And the fun thing about these is that all you're doing is adding water. And depending on, it's like many things, depending on the type of water you have, that can change a little bit about the profile, but also the type of water, as in if you do a sparkling water instead of a regular still water, all of a sudden you've got something like a sparkling wine or a sparkling rosé or even like a Lambrusco sort of uh, type of drink. So that's an interesting product. Uh, I know that uh, Pusateri is currently, if you're in Toronto, does carry that, uh, but that's based out of the UK, and it is actually a established wine writer who actually put together this recipe. So it's someone from the industry who knows about tastes, uh, and now this is a product that he's offering, and it's, like I said, it's a cordial, and it's uh, pretty amazing, actually. What's it called again? It's called Jukes, uh, J-U-K-E-S, and actually I think a number of restaurants are starting to look into having this on their menu. So uh, relatively new, something to look out for, uh, but it's a, it's a pretty neat uh, product in this, in this sphere. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Glenn in London. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. Thank you. Uh, great show. I was just going to, to say, and actually just uh, thought of it now while you're talking about cocktails, I had an unusual one. On Sunday, it's uh, it's orange juice and champagne, and it's half and half, and and that was really delicious. That's called a mimosa. <laughs> that's, it's that's alcoholic. Right. That's right. And uh, I just looked around, and uh, everybody in this place seemed to be having it. But it was just, they don't have it all the time. It's, yeah, they usually uh, have it, it on Sunday <laughs> at brunch. And it's uh, and some people call it a 
a breakfast drink, and I can see why with the with orange juice and everything. But uh, what I was going to say, what I was telling your producer was uh, a lot of the uh, non-alcoholic beer and 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 stuff like that in bars and restaurants. That a lot of them don't carry it because uh, it, quite frankly, doesn't sell. Well, and, uh, I don't know if that's correct. That's your experience. Uh, we'll check. Oh yes, it, it is. I, I I'm thinking why. If you don't want beer, why wouldn't you have something else? Why are you trying to pretend that you're drinking something that isn't that? And uh, and they don't make a lot of money off of it. Okay, we it's will like- check with that. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, yeah, mimosas, like, uh, <laughs> they're yeah. not a new thing. Yeah, I disagree with Glenn as well in, as far as the beers are concerned. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Glenn used to come to Zero Cocktail Bar or or, or somewhere else. So there's Athletic Brewing, there's Groovy. I, the list is endless. So I can I have given away or you know said, hey, taste this beer. Tell me what you think. And I always get back, wow. If you did not tell me that this was beer, I would not have known. Huh? And- right. I, I, and I see that with a lot of the other spirits. So I know the quality is. Premium. I'm not going to pay, put a non-premium uh, quality in in my cocktail because I'm a person who does not drink, and this is important for me. And therefore, I recognize my customers having the same wants to have the same experience. So, yeah, I disagree. And I would say that, you know, it just really depends on, I guess, when the last experience with a product like that might have been. Uh, the market has really grown and exploded and there's so many sophisticated options now and obviously as the more players coming in as they see that there's opportunities we get better um, not only options but also just better tasting products itself. Uh, yeah, and uh, BlogTO just did a piece, and I've I've seen the same uh, thing, uh, you know, same query in other cities, in big cities in the U.S. It's saying, why are mocktails so expensive? Shouldn't they be cheaper, Renee? So I think one of the things that we all have to step back, you know, and, and look at cocktails in general on its own is that I think most people agree that, yes, base ingredients, you might have some alcohol, you might have some, you know, uh, maybe juices or other kind of uh, syrups. Um, they all take time and effort to make. Uh, now, what makes uh, mocktails or, in this case, what we're talking about more as, as like the zero proof or the... Um, uh, the, the zero alcohol sort of cocktails are is that they still use and require the same amount of effort to make all those, you know, base um, ingredients. But the one thing is that because they don't have something like the alcohol, and a lot of times with alcohol, they have the infusion of different, you know, like herbs and spices and other flavors. Now it's to either simulate those same flavors or to be able to add something that has those same elements. And so you're still taking the same amount of energy, effort, to make that um, and put together an, a drink that doesn't contain alcohol. And I think that's the misconception that a lot of people might have is that just because the ingredient itself doesn't have ethanol, um, that it should automatically mean that it's less costly. But the, the actual man hours and the effort and making these recipes to make something so delicious or as complex as what you would normally find in a, a regular cocktail with alcohol uh, does take that extra time and energy. And so that's what we're kind of paying a little bit more for, or not more for, but at least that's what's being accounted for in the final, I guess, price point yeah. that you could see. Should, shouldn't we have equity? We should have equity in everything. So if I'm not drinking, why should I have a crappy drink? That, this exactly. is where we're at. Right? It's a cocktail. The cocktail is crafting a flavor. It's not a mocktail. It's not a Shirley Temple. I don't even make Shirley Temples. When I make what you may call a Shirley Temple, because I'm going to do a few things to it, it's called the Shirley. Right? So <laughs> we are just Very fancy. There must be equity, right? They must. Some of us want to drink for, uh, don't want to drink alcohol for health reasons, culture, uh, religion, and some of us are in recovery, and some of us are like me, just traveling a sober lifestyle. We hmm. should be allowed to have the best. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And when I, uh, I think I, I mentioned that I was at this incredible tasting and I had non-alcoholic pairings and they were all very complicated and, um, it'd be great. You know, I'm happy to go to a bar and order that, but uh, I'm not going to be mixing that up at home while I'm cooking dinner. Exactly. Sure. For sure. And sometimes, look, you want to go out and have one cocktail. And then after that, you either want to go low ABV or you want to go no alcohol. Should you not have that access? 
Again, I, I think it's also important to point out that um, not everyone has the, I guess, freedom or liberties after attending a social function or going out for drinks to have, you know, maybe a designated driver. So if they're driving, that might be the thing, is that they might start with something and then they'd want to finish off the evening with something still delicious but not move to water or <laughs> or juice. And so these yeah. give options for those individuals as well who are trying to basically be responsible with how they they plan their their day or their evening. Okay, well, I'm full of sugar doesn't help the alcohol either. Exactly. Thanks so much also for for those tips. Um, What would you guys like to leave us with, starting with Gail? Well, I'd like to leave you with Zero Cocktail Bar is here for you. It's dry (laughs) January. Next month is dry February. We've got our mixology workshop. If you want to learn how to do these at home with not a lot of effort and have some fun, while you're doing it, July 27th, come check us out. February 14th, follow us on Instagram. Okay. We are here for you. I'm excited about the non-alc uh, industry. I'm excited about the options that are available as somebody who does not drink. And I am excited for all of us who are, are going to be able to enjoy these types of opportunities. Okay. It's not just about us. It's about all of us. Okay. And Renee, especially, I think uh, this is catching on more with younger people than with older ones. Am I right? That's correct. I think it's just because of the the breaking of the stigma that it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be something um, you know sugary and and cheap and um, and I guess con- considered like a childlike drink. So uh, the one great thing about about the current environment is that there is a lot of options. Um, just like cocktails, uh, in the traditional sense, they do have different profiles that appeal to different tastes. So if you know, someone hasn't yet tried that, uh, of zero proof or, um, you know, the, these sorts of non-alcoholic cocktails, so just to have the chance to give it another shot because, uh, chances are you'll be very surprised. The flavors that come out and the enjoyability is very much high up there, uh, even though in the past it might have always been considered something that wasn't sophisticated. Okay. Thank you so much, Renee Soon and Gail Lynch. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you, both. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, we are taking another break. And when we come back, this uh, recently in the top 10 congested intersections in Toronto. We know there's congestion. Now we will know exactly where. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, last week we learned that Toronto is one of the most congested cities in the world with people sitting in traffic an average of 118 hours a year. Well, now the city of Toronto has come up with a top 10 list, the top 10 most congested intersections. So now I am joined by Roger Brown, Director of Traffic Management in Transportation Services at the City of Toronto. Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me on your show. Okay. Well, first of all, how did you come up with the list? Uh, So we at the City of Toronto have been tracking um, the levels of congestion through a number of data sources that we kind of already have. Um, we have a contract with a company called Here Data, which basically gets anonymous probe-based data. We get data from our partners at Waze. We, quite frankly, even our traffic signals have traffic sensors on them that basically detect uh, vehicles going by. And so we're getting volumes uh, of traffic from that information. And even our watcher speed signs as part of the Vision Zero safety plan, um, those actually log data information as well, too. So we have a tremendous wealth of data that we basically put it all together using some sort of big data technology to kind of build a bit of a mosaic of what's really going in on and around the city. And and we started doing this just before the pandemic, using some historic data to get some references beforehand, but we've basically been tracking it all the way through. So we have a really, really good understanding of where the hotspots are and where we really need to target our efforts. Okay, so I'm looking at the list. Uh, the most congested is Lakeshore Boulevard East and Lower yes. Sherburne. And uh, is that where people get on to uh, the Gardner? Yeah, it's in that area. And, and quite frankly, if you look down, it's the one comment I was going to make. When you look at a number of these locations, it, it comes as no surprise in that these are locations that 
um, have an incredible amount of construction going on, um, specifically the Lakeshore Laura Jarvis area, Lakeshore Laura Sherburn, um, and quite frankly, we're going to see more with the Ontario line. Um, likewise, for folks who've driven up around the Finch and 400 area, uh, you know, right around the, the ramps, uh, whatnot, again, incredible amount of uh, construction closures going on there, specifically tied back to the transit initiatives that Metrolinx is doing. Um, but I think that's that's really the kind of backdrop narrative to um, these locations, to be uh, quite frank with you. If you had asked me the reasons for congestion before in the past, I, there's a whole bunch of different reasons, contributing factors. But right now here in the city of Toronto, the big overarching thing really is the construction um, that's having this, this significant impact. Okay, you know what? I'm very glad to have you say that because often when when I talk to people about, well, what about all this construction? They say, oh, it's not a factor. There are whatever, too many cars on the road, but it, it is. So I'm very glad to have you uh, say that. And the big offenders here again are Lakeshore Boulevard and Finch Avenue West is yeah, like I- number two, number three, number four, number five. Absolutely. You know, I hate to dwell on, but it is a bit of a perfect storm. We have an incredible amount of transit infrastructure work on the go. Uh, Finch Crosstown, Eglinton Crosstown. Now we're going to be starting up with Ontario Line. And obviously, no one can argue against that. That's vital transit infrastructure that the city is decades old and, and getting. Um, in parallel with that, we, we have a lot of linear construction. So one thing that my staff do, um, we do strategize logistical like sort of, we try not to close every street in a neighborhood to, to, to cripple a neighborhood with closures in terms of what we allow versus uh, what we don't allow. Well, you sometimes you succeed perhaps better than others. Yeah, <laughs> it's challenging. It's really cha- well. In fact, on that same note, though, if you can imagine what winds up happening is oftentimes with our strategy, um, we'd have some you know work that's needed. You know, let's say for example, Toronto Water has work that's needed. Uh, you know, and in a certain area, critical infrastructure kind of work. Um, it's not critical three or four years ago, and there's a whole bunch of other things happening in the neighborhood. So we say, you know what, let's defer that work a couple of years to not, you know, really close every single street in the neighborhood. Well, unfortunately, now we get to a point where eventually you can't keep pushing them down the road. And a lot of these things are starting to hit that point where we sort of have no choice. So <laughs> as you're kind of alluding to, unfortunately, there are the situations here or there where we do have to close, you know, more than we would have preferred to have. Um, but again, uh, we have a number of tools in the, the city of Toronto's move TO congestion management plan to help in, in mitigating that. And then certainly communication. And I really appreciate you giving me the chance to see you here today. Um, opportunities to get the word out to the public as well with respect to some of this. Okay. But, uh, for some of them, if people are trying to avoid it, then they end up on side streets and, and the people who actually live there, uh, are, inconvenienced by too much traffic on their little street. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a, that is a big concern for us, right? And this is why it's so important for us, wherever possible, that we try to make sure that there's some kind of a relief valve, some sort of an alternative major arterial route that people can take to, to make sure that they're not making those, those, I'll call them bad choices to drive through smaller side streets. Mm. Uh, and, uh, I mean, uh, is that, uh, you know, would Waze do that for you or, um, how do people know? Well, unfortunately, Waze, uh, you know, depending on where your, your origin destination, it might direct you through smaller side streets. Um, this is something that we tried to work with our partners at Waze to, to curb. I think it's something that across North America, a number of jurisdictions have been trying really, really hard to curb. But, you know, Ways, no matter how you look at it, if we strategize to make sure that there is some kind of viable major alternative arterial, and we've done that in many, many cases, there's so many instances that we've had to go through and do this where we are, we are successful in being able to achieve that, then Ways automatically picks up on that. Um, so really, it's, it's, it's a very challenging situation. Um, certainly, what it, uh, I try to argue that it's perfect. But uh, but certainly to the best of our abilities, keeping those major arterials uh, open as, as alternatives, that uh, that even uh, algorithms like Waze will basically kind of uh, um, you know direct you to those as opposed to side streets. 
Uh, and again, I'm I'm looking at this list. <laughs> well, I thought I thought the traffic that I encounter is bad, and I uh, would very rarely go to any of these. You know, maybe Lakeshore <laughs> and Bay Street occasionally. Uh, but mm. what I uh, my perception of what I encounter is kind of bad enough. Yeah, it it really is a case where um, you know from before the pandemic to now. So as we were tracking the traffic conditions. Obviously, we saw a significant decline during the pandemic. Um, and those numbers, you know, through the various stages of reopening, we saw sort of gradually climbing and climbing. Now, as you can see from those numbers uh, across the city, we're seeing um, levels of, uh, in terms of travel time index, we're seeing the travel time has actually increased. But the interesting thing, though, is the relative volume um, across the city still hasn't met. And again, that goes right back to, um, why again we're seeing that the, the, the number one culprit really is these closures, the construction closures, right? The fact that, um, you know, if we have the available road capacity there, then uh, certainly it, uh, it makes a difference, right? Okay. Well, uh, again, I'm really happy to hear you say that because when I've said that with various experts, they have totally poo-pooed me. And um, uh, I think it's just, uh, and what, what about in terms of, you know, limiting the construction closers. Yeah, again, uh, to, to the, the number one thing that we do whenever any request comes across my desk, my team's desk, to basically review whether or not we would allow a uh, construction closure is to make sure that it is critically needed, um, especially at this point in time where there's just so much going on. We really have to make sure that it's only the, the, the must-dos that we're basically giving uh, permission to proceed ahead. And that, that's really one of the key cornerstones of one of the parts of our Move TO congestion management plan, which is this whole idea of construction hubs. We piloted this up in uh, the Young and Edmonton area, and we've actually now expanded it to a number of other locations within the city as well, too. And in fact, if you look on the map where we have these construction hubs, they very closely follow the new Ontario line, like along Lakeshore, and then when we have what we call the downtown hub, which basically runs along Queen Street, um, and that, there's no uh, surprise or mistake there. That was very much deliberate that, you know, in these neighborhoods where we see so much construction going on, that we really, really need to ramp up our efforts in terms of managing that whole process. And to your point, making sure that we're not just saying yes to everybody who comes along. Quite frankly, we're giving out a lot of no's. Um, and really, really only allowing the very, very critical construction work to proceed ahead. Okay, well, um, uh, we'll hold you to that, and I bet there are a lot of people who question that. But, Roger Brown, thank you very much for being with us. No problem at all. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, and uh, people will post that list for you on our website, and that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.